meet so many people today. My name is Don Strand. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm really glad to see so many of you here today. Old friends over there on my right side and new friends over here on the left. So it's great. Wendy and I take a lot of road trips because our children couldn't bear either the price or the politics of California anymore and have fled to greener pastures where things are cheaper and saner. So we like to travel by road, and when we do, the miles go more, more smoothly when we listen to audiobooks. We've recently been listening to a series uh, by a writer named Michael Kruger, whom I really like because of the word pictures that he paints. I'm kind of a wordy guy, um, at least in my head. And I, I love his writing style. But he's, he's writing a story about a uh, retired sheriff in a small town in northern Minnesota, and it's a multi-volume series that goes through his life. Now, I mention this to remind you that the Bible is also one story with many volumes. It has a, what's called a redemptive thread that runs from Genesis 1 all the way to the very end of the Bible, which is Revelation 22. Now, Pastor Steve has been preaching out of volume 71, which is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, volume 71, tells of how the church developed in the years right after Jesus was ascended into heaven. I've had the privilege over the last few years to be teaching from volume one called Genesis. And Genesis is the beginning of this redemptive story. And to bring you up to speed just a little bit, we have already run through the life of the of the what's called the pre-diluvial period before the flood, after the flood, now the life of Abraham, and we've moved on to Isaac. Now, one thing that I do is I, I believe that you can't worship what you don't know. And you can't know unless you're taught. So preaching is not only messages to encourage us, it's messages to teach us as well. So I teach using a handout as well. So I would encourage you to find that handout in your bulletin if you're so disposed and use it through, throughout. Let me open with a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we come together this morning in anticipation of the comfort you bring by your spirit through your word of truth. So we come with our struggles, past and present, yet we give thanks with our whole hearts for your steadfast love, even in our wavering faithlessness. Father, bless your children now through the words of life. May they be proclaimed accurately by your servant to your people for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Sunday school has been going through a series entitled Alive, How the Resurrection Changes Everything. And in this series, Dr. Gabe Fleur presents the case for the historical accuracy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, two weeks ago, he made a very encouraging point from two words found in Mark 16, 7. Now, Mark 16 describes the events that occurred on the very first Easter morning when two Marys 
Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, and one additional lady named Salome went to the tomb to anoint the hastily buried body of Jesus. And they were concerned about how they would handle the heavy stone that was in front of the entrance of the tomb, sealing the tomb. But when they arrived there, they were surprised that the stone had been rolled away. And Mark describes what happened next. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Two words, and Peter. Now the disciples were crushed after the crucifixion, but none more than Peter because in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus was arrested, Peter had sworn his undying allegiance to Jesus. Mark 14, 29. Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Hours later, Peter waited in the courtroom of, courtyard of the high priest as Jesus faced his accusers inside. And Peter did indeed deny Jesus three times. On that third time, Mark says bluntly, but Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So when that angel told the women to go and tell his disciples and Peter, imagine how comforting those words must have been to him. The one who had rejected his friend, who had denied his teacher, is welcomed back with open arms by the words sent to him from the risen Christ. Tell my disciples, make sure you tell Peter too. Now, I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 26. I've titled this message, And Peter. The two words, I believe, empowered Peter's efforts as an apostle and evangelist after Jesus ascended to heaven until the very end of Peter's life when he was crucified upside down as his Savior, uh, in memory of his Savior. Peter's remorse evaporated on the assurance of those two words, and Peter. 
And perhaps this account of Isaac's struggle many years earlier in Genesis 26, that was familiar to Peter, helped assure him when he heard that Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter knew he was forgiven. So if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read selectively. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Avimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Then going to verses 12 and 13. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And verses 23 through 25. From there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. May God bless the reading of his word to you. Please be seated. Genesis 26 is the story of how God continued his line of, pro of a promised redeemer now through Isaac, the son of Abraham and his wife, Rebekah. It's a story of faith, failure, and faithfulness during a time of crisis in their lives. Now, I've broken this text into three sections First, in verses 1 through 6, we'll see the expected obedience that accompanies faith. Second, in verses 7 through 11, we'll see Isaac's unsurprising disobedience. And then finally, we'll discover what's called the extra nos obedience, a Latin phrase that means outside of us, the kind of obedience that's given by faith, and is the foundation on which God's promises rest. So expected, unsurprising, and extra nos obedience. And my goal in these three forms of obedience will be to encourage you in your Christian life, in your walk with Christ, because they point to the confident hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the expected obedience. Now, g the expected obedience is what God commands as he directs Isaac to stay in the promised land during this crisis. 
Now, last time in our study in Genesis, we looked at the birth of the twin boys, Esau, firstborn, and Jacob, the one born grasping his brother's heel, these twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. And we saw how dysfunction in that family grew into ever-increasing sort of turmoil because the parents were divided. We saw the contrast between the two boys. Esau was an outdoorsman, a skillful hunter, and Jacob was a, a quiet boy, it says, content to stay at home and help his mom. Now, Isaac preferred Esau, but Rebekah liked Jacob. And their favoritism put these two boys at odds as well as divided the allegiance of the parents. Now, Isaac and his family have settled near Be'er Lahai Ra'ai, as this map shows. Now, it's a bit of an eye test, but what he's down here in the southwest corner of the promised land, Canaan. Israel is to the west, and the Philistines are up along the coast to the northeast. So, he's settled here, um, and... Now, a famine occurs in the land. So, Isaac and Rebekah, they move north to Gerar, where Isaac makes his presence known, as is proper to Avimelech, the king over the region. And it's here that Isaac hopes to find greener pastures. Now, 20 years earlier, God had comforted Isaac after his father Abraham died. Now, God appears to, a to Isaac again, and he promises to be with him and bless him during this famine. Now, as 21st century Americans, we really can't anticipate or we can't imagine just how stressful this situation must have been. Because with modern farming technology and distribution and all the things that we have, we don't experience famine in our lives. But in ancient times, famine was usually brought about by a lack of rain or a drought. Well, no rain meant no crops. The grazing land would burn in the hot desert sun of the near, near Middle East, so no food for animals. No crops, no food for animals, meant no food for people, no clothing for people, no housing for people. Everything depended on the land. So in this time of intense stress over this drought, Isaac and family moved to the northwest up to near Gerar. And there, even though there apparently is food in Egypt, Isaac is to trust God and to remain in the land which I tell you, as it says. Now, the promise God made to Abraham included land, land that Isaac is now standing on. So the promise is passing to Isaac, and part of that promise is the land promise. So God says, Isaac, stay here. This is the land of promise, and I will provide for you. I will bless you. I will make the promises I've made to your father continue through you. Now, this promise we're talking about is first described, uh, first described to Abraham in Genesis 12. God promised to make Abraham a great nation, to have offspring as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sands of the seas, seashore. And through Abraham, all the families of the earth would 
be blessed. That was the promise. It was a continuation, actually, of the promise that was first made in the Garden of Eden when, fought, when humanity fell into sin. And this promise will ultimately be revealed or fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But in the text before us this morning, the promise coming through Isaac is a continuation of because of Abraham's faith. Look at verse 5. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, we know from our study of Abraham's life that he didn't always obey God's voice. In fact, some of the most glaring examples of faithlessness in the Bible were Abraham's. But God's promise was unconditional. As I said, it was first made to Eve in the Garden of Eden when, Eden when she and Adam first disobeyed. And the promise would continue through Abraham. Now, Isaac's obedience will determine the immediate blessings that God is promising him during the, the, during the famine. And that is the way God will continue the promise through Isaac. But it's clear from Genesis that the promise depends not on Isaac's obedience, but on faith. But true faith always includes obedience. The heaping up of the attributes in verse 5, how Abraham obeyed my voice kept my charge, my commandments, statutes, and my laws. It's not meant to show us the level of obedience that's necessary for the promise to continue. It's to show us the kind of life that confirms the presence of God-given faith. Genesis 15, 6 is the key statement. Abraham believed God, and God credited him with righteousness. Now, notice it does not say Abraham believed in God. It says Abraham believed God, and it credited him with righteousness. There's a difference, and it will become clear in the moments ahead. Now, this promise to Abraham is passing to Isaac, and he's expected to display the same faith-based obedience that shows integrity in all he does, integrity in his life. Now, God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. But blameless doesn't mean sinless. Blameless describes the ongoing obedience that flows out of true faith. Isaac demonstrates that faith in verse 6. Look at the words. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Even though he knew there was possibly food in Egypt, Isaac settled in Gerar. So Isaac's obedience provides us with our first fill-in. The promise of salvation is by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. It always includes obedience that honors God. It always includes obedience that honors God. 
I don't know about you, but obedience is a word that has negative connotations to me. You know, my mother complained often about my lack of it. And we're naturally disposed to sort of have a negative connotation on that word because we are independent. We want to set our own course. We want to have it our way. So we tend to bristle at the demand to obey. But God's demand for obedience is based on his love. And it's intended to bring about the greatest good for us and for others. In this world, we're all burdened and we're weighed down with cares many times because we don't want to obey. We want to do it our way. And we end up, uh, we end up with cares uh, weighted down and burdened. But Jesus makes this promise. Listen to what he says. He says, come to me and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, with this promise, it only seems logical to want to obey. And so it was that Isaac then settled in Gerar. But verse 7 brings us to the second point. His unsurprising disobedience. Follow along as I read verses 7 and 8. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, Isaac said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was an attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Avimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. The word laughing here in the Hebrew is conjugal caressing. We won't go there, but if this story sounds familiar, it's because Isaac's fear for his life that caused him to lie about Rebekah was the very same fear his father Abraham had for his wife when he lied about Sarah, or his life, when he lied about Sarah, his life, first to the pharaoh of Egypt, in Genesis 12, and then later to an earlier Philistine king recorded in, in Genesis 20. But God's not surprised at Isaac's disobedience. In fact, God knew it would happen and had already made it part of his plan. This is because God works his will in creation in two ways, and these two key ways are the key words on your handout. The first is called God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will comes from his infinite power and knowledge through which he determines everything that happens everywhere and at all times in his creation. This sovereign will of God cannot be changed, broken, or prevented. What he has sovereignly determined to happen will happen, and it will happen without violating our freely made choices. And exactly how this happens, God doesn't explain to us. All we know is that it does. And it's really evidence both of his power and of his love for us. 
That's God's sovereign will. But there's a second aspect to God's will called his prescriptive will. God's prescriptive will is the basis for his moral law. Now, out of God's infinite holiness, he has prescribed laws that establish justice and equality, and he commands all people in all times and places to obey his law so that his creation is a just and equitable creation. God's moral law is also unchangeable, but it's broken all the time. When we break God's moral law, it's called sin. And an infinitely good and just God must punish those who break his law. But breaking his law cannot change God's sovereign will because God cannot be moved from his accomplishing the goal that he has set to glorify himself through his creation. So God sovereignly willed to continue his promise, an unconditional promise to Abraham through Isaac. So in verse 12, we read that Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Remember, this is a time of famine. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Isaac's unsurprising disobedience did not change God's plan. But as we'll see, his disobedience made the blessings bittersweet. That leads to our second fill-in. Sin affects our progress in holiness, but not our position as holy if we believe in the Savior promised to Abraham. Sin affects our progress in holiness, but not our position that God has established through faith in Christ his Savior. 2,000 years after these events in Genesis 26, the Apostle Paul writes something that's quite surprising. It's in his letter to the churches in Galatia. And he writes this, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, counted is a word that means credited, Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What was the the blessing promised to Abraham? He believed God and it credited him with righteousness. And Paul says what he believed was the gospel. Inspired by God, Paul writes that Abraham understood God's promise was specifically of a Savior. He didn't know exactly how. He didn't know who. But he believed and that faith from God credited Abraham with righteousness. 
Now, it would be 2,000 years before these shadows in the Old Testament become reality in the New Testament. They became reality by a virgin birth in Bethlehem when God himself entered humanity as the God-man we call Jesus. And Jesus would fulfill his father's moral law and earn the final and sufficient righteousness necessary for salvation for all who put their trust in him. But in the meantime, God would give countless numbers of people of faith in his promises that would credit them with righteousness as well. And we read about these people in these pages. We read about King David. We read about Daniel. We read about Esther. We read about Ruth. We read about all of these people who were credited with the righteousness that Christ would earn for them by God's gift of faith to them. This truth of a righteousness credited to people by faith, not works, is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Christianity is not another moral system where inherently sinful people can earn righteousness necessary to stand before an infinitely holy God who's angry over injustice in his creation. His creation. We cannot earn the righteousness necessary to stand before that God. Instead, Christianity offers a Savior who has earned the necessary righteousness that God then uses to save countless people through time. Abraham was promised that Savior. He believed God would bring that Savior, and the promise would continue through Isaac despite his lack of faithfulness, despite his disobedience. And that brings us to the last point, the extra nos obedience that secures the promise. Extra nos, what does that mean? It's a Latin phrase that means from outside of us. Extra nos describes why God continues to bless his people, Isaac in view here and the rest of us, despite our continual failings. We see this in verse 13. And the man, that's Isaac, became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. But the blessing is bittersweet because it's tinged with Isaac's disobedience. Look at verse 14. But the Philistines envied him. What they did was they began cutting off his access to water. They began filling up the wells that were needed for watering his flocks and growing his crops until finally King Avimelech ordered him to leave the territory. Get out. Get out. Now the Philistines were afraid of Isaac because of his lie about Rebekah that he had told for a long time, it says in verse 8. He had carried on this deception for a long time. And when it was discovered, they recognized, the Philistines, that his lie could have brought disaster on them. Our modern worldview does not quite connect up with the supernatural power that these people understood exists in this world. But because our worldview doesn't recognize it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So they knew that 
if somehow this lie had resulted in an adultery with his life, that Isaac's God would have brought down the house on them. They knew that Isaac's God was dangerous, and they knew that Isaac was then a threat. And Avimelech said, get out. So they drove him away. And I think it's safe to say that Isaac wondered if God hadn't abandoned him. Hundredfold crops, suddenly he's driven away. No wells, no water, no nothing. God has abandoned him. Why would God abandon me? Because of my lie. They found it out because of my unfaithfulness. And you know what? This was the third instance of this particular sin. Abraham had used it twice before, and now Isaac uses it. So three times they denied God, just like Peter. And in each case, the result was bittersweet blessing. But God remained faithful when they failed because of his promise. And in each case, God graciously opened his arms to console them, sending them an and Peter message. Comes to Isaac in verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. The remaining verses now in chapter 26 tell us how the water rights issue was finally resolved when a covenant was made because God sovereignly moved the heart of Avimelech and his people to come back to Isaac and to offer terms of a peace treaty. And in the end, the seventh well is dug, and it's secure because of that peace treaty. Isaac then settled in Beersheba, where years earlier Abraham had planted a tamarisk tree and had called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So he remains in the promised land. Now, the reason God remained faithful even as Isaac stumbled so badly, and he does so throughout his entire life, are in those final words in verse 24, because of my servant Abraham's sake. I mentioned that the Old Testament is filled with shadows. Well, a shadow is something that is, you know, the sun shines behind me, my shadow's on the ground, but the real me. So a shadow in the Old Testament points to a reality in the New Testament. And God says Isaac's blessings are, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. So Abraham, then, is a shadow that is realized in Jesus Christ. Because Isaac's blessings come from an extra nos righteousness earned by Abraham that's now applied to Isaac as the promise moves forward in time. Righteousness from outside of him is what was credited to Isaac by God's grace. 
this extra nos righteousness foreshadowed the perfect righteousness from the one to whom Abraham pointed, Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience, even to death on a cross, is the extra nos obedience based righteousness that's given to all who have faith in Christ as God's gift of grace. Adam read that passage from Ephesians 2 earlier, didn't he? So here's our last fill-in. We're saved not by our works, but by Christ's, which are given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. We're saved by works, but not ours, by Christ's. And they're given to us by God's grace through faith in Christ. And this is the glorious promise that God made the very moment that we denied our Creator in the Garden of Eden. And that truth was veiled throughout history, but God graciously gave people glimpses of His redemptive plan and the faith to trust in his promise. And through that faith, God preserved all those who believed before Christ accomplished the redemption on the cross. And now he saves and preserves countless numbers of people after the cross through the very same means, by his gift of faith. It is by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by our works so that no one can boast, as Paul says. But I want to be clear. Faith in Christ is not a license to sin. Paul says, may it never be, by no means, he says in Romans 6, 1. He goes on to say that saving faith means you have died to sin and you're buried with Christ in your baptism in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Romans 6, 4. And this is the very picture that we will celebrate shortly. We will see people being raised to new life in Christ. But in closing, let me offer this encouragement. First of all, sanctification. That's a big word. Sanctification. It's the word that means allowing the Holy Spirit to conform us or to shape us so that we act like Christ. Sanctification is a process. It's a difficult process because it means dying, and dying is messy. The dying in view here is dying to self. But when those moments of remorse over your failure to die come to you, often at 2 a.m., remind yourself that Jesus is ready to say, and Peter, to you. 
to comfort you, to assure you that he has not rejected you, and he never will. But if these ideas sound foreign to you because you've not yet put your faith in the only one who can save you, Jesus is saying, and Peter, to you as well. And I hope that you'll find the same relief and joy that Peter experienced as he ran to his wonderful, merciful Savior. As we've seen today, neither Abraham, Isaac, nor Peter were perfect. God's people are sometimes strong, but they're often weak. But the words, and Peter, are given to us to overcome our guilt, self-guilt, and to celebrate God's gracious gift of salvation through faith in his faithful son who earned our pardon and joyously gives us his righteousness, extra nos, that sets us free. And if you are free in Jesus, John says you are free indeed. Let's pray.